Good morning. So this morning, I'm going to begin uh, by speaking directly to the single people in the room and those who are single at some point in their life. So I guess that's everybody. Um, I'm willing to guess that most of us at some point have received dating advice because people love to give dating advice. And one piece of advice that has been around for a long time is that you should make a list of the qualities you would like your future spouse to have. Note this is only for the single people in the room. Um, the, the best time to do this, of course, is before you're dating someone. So you can objectively think about what you are looking for. And so then when someone comes along and you begin to consider whether you might have a future with that person, you can look at your list and see how the person compares. Now, as far as dating advice goes, it's not terrible. Um, it has some value, particularly if your list has things like shared values and a shared faith. But it's also not foolproof because someone can look perfect on paper and not be the person for you. There's some truth in that Rolling Stones song, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. We don't always get what we want, and that's a good thing, because what we want is not necessarily what we need. I was thinking about this in light of the fact that it's Christ the King Sunday. And Jesus Christ is altogether different than most kings we imagine. In fact, Jesus is not necessarily the king we would want or ask for, but he is very much the king that we need. And that's what we're going to explore together this morning. Three ways in which Jesus flips the script of what we think we want in a king, but in Jesus we find what we really need. So to begin with, uh, some of us gathered yesterday uh, for an event called Preparing for the Harvest, and we looked at kind of where we're at as a culture at this time. And I don't think it's a big news to anyone that in 21st century urban Canada, diversity and inclusiveness are two of the keys to the culture. So given this, we would be looking for a king who is open to everyone, no matter their background, and who is open and accommodating to people's individual ideas, ideas about God and life and truth and goodness. So how does Jesus fit our expectations? Well, for one thing, Jesus is radically inclusive, which is one of the things that made him so offensive to the people in the first century. In a culture 
that had clear boundaries, that is in his Jewish culture, of what was holy and what was unholy, who was in and who was out, Jesus ate both with known sinners, like prostitutes and tax collectors, and with those who were known to be very religious. He spoke and taught both men and women. He welcomed and prayed with children. He ministered primarily to the Jews, but he also reached out to Samaritans and Gentiles. He even praised a Roman soldier for his faith, one of their oppressive overlords. And before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his apostles to make disciples of all nations. No people group was to be excluded. So Jesus is clearly open to all kinds of people. But how do he and his apostles approach people with different ideas about God and life and truth and goodness? Usually, they begin by trying to find common ground with them and building bridges from there. For example, when the Apostle Paul was in Athens, he noticed all their idols. And so he remarked, how religious you are. And then he said, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And from there he went on to present the gospel in a way, in terms, that they could understand. And he called them to repentance. Because wherever they went, wherever the apostles preached the gospel, they told the people to repent of and put behind them whatever was in their lives that stood between them and God. So for some, that was the worship of idols or contact with magic and the occult, or drunkenness, or sexual immorality, or greed, or gossip. So just how accommodating is Jesus and his kingdom about other people's ideas of God and life and truth and goodness? Very open in terms of meeting people right where they're at. But Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So entering Jesus' kingdom means accepting that he is the king. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. This is a stumbling block for a lot of people. It was a stumbling block for me. But Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. And so he does not give us a catalog of religions and philosophies to choose from. Instead, he offers us his very self. And he asks us to put our trust in him alone and to follow him. There are people of all faiths, 
of all backgrounds who have come to know and accept Jesus for their own. We know from the book of Revelation that there are people of every nation, tribe, and tongue around the throne worshiping the Lord. Now we may desire a king who says, go ahead, create or choose your own religion or philosophy. As long as it's meaningful to you, that's what matters. But Jesus invites us to know him as the way, the truth, and the life, as the one who can lead us into eternal life with God. Another desire we may have when it comes to a king is one who promises a certain quality of life and a level of protection from the dangers of this world. We see this expectation in the social contracts between governments and their people. The people agree to obey the government, its laws, and to pay taxes, and the government in turn agrees to provide and maintain basic infrastructure, things like access to clean water, food and shelter, police and fire protection, and the opportunity to earn a living so we can supply for our basic needs. Now, governments don't always actually provide these things, but that's the basic idea. Jesus told his disciples to pray each day for their daily bread and to trust the Lord for the things they need, things like clothing, things like food. Um, and in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Bible that Jesus read, is full of prayers for protection from enemies and danger and drought and famine. As Ben said, Jesus our King takes care of us. But there is no guaranteed basic income in the kingdom of God. There is no promise that the citizens of the kingdom will be free from harm or from danger. Consider the words of Jesus to his followers. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells his followers to expect persecution and even to consider it a blessing. He says that we should rejoice when people spread lies about us if they're doing it because of Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't remember signing up for this. But the words of Jesus and the entire New Testament actually normalize the experience of Christian persecution over and over again. Jesus also said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Jesus expects his followers to accept that suffering and self-denial is part of living for him in this world. It is part of the package. He also suggests that we need to be willing to give up our lives for him. Jesus does not sound anything like the politicians who make great promises hoping that we'll vote for them. He sounds more like a recruiter for the Canadian Special Forces. Jesus does not promise long life, good health, or even three square meals a day for those who follow him. What he does promise is a life worth living, a life of hope in all circumstances, because Jesus will always be with us, both in life and in death and in the world to come. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul recalled just some of the dangers and hardships that he underwent as a missionary for the gospel. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? But Paul actually jokes that he's boasting about these things because he is, in fact, boasting in his weakness. And a little later in this same letter to the Corinthians, he writes, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. This is the quality of life that Jesus promises his followers. No, not necessarily that they're going to be shipwrecked, but that in whatever circumstances they find themselves, the Lord will be with them and he will grant them the strength that they need. We may think what we want is a king who will offer us a carefree life. But in Jesus, we come to know a king who may or may not take us on grand adventures. But in all circumstances, he gives us the courage to follow him because we know who he is, and we know he will never, ever abandon us. Finally, the third thing we may be looking for in a king is one who will accomplish great and decisive victories. In other words, we want a king who is clearly a winner because we want to be on the winning side. 
Now, if we read God's word, we know that Jesus wins. He is the victor. That is clear. We know that he's capable of doing great things. We read about his miracles, healings, and teaching in the New Testament. We may hear testimonies from others in the church who share what the Lord Jesus has done for them in their lives. But what the kingdom of God counts as victories and wins may not always look that way in the eyes of the world. In our gospel lesson this morning from John 18, after Jesus is arrested and he has a trial with the Jewish religious leaders, he's handed over to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Pilate interviews Jesus. He asks if he is a king. Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this statement could have been a relief for Pilate, but it also could be a concern. On one hand, if Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, then Pilate doesn't have that much to worry about. Jesus is no immediate threat to his power or even to the rule of the Roman emperor. On the other hand, if Jesus' kingdom truly is otherworldly, his power might be greater than anything Pilate can begin to imagine. So Pilate attempts to release Jesus, but he's prevented from doing so by the Jewish leaders, and so he has Jesus flogged. Afterwards, the Jewish leaders come back to him and tell him Jesus must be killed because he claimed to be the Son of God. This unnerves Pilate. And so he speaks to Jesus again. He asks him where he is from. Jesus refuses to answer. And Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know I have the power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answers, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus turns the power dynamic in the room on its head. Yes, it appears that Pilate holds Jesus' life in his hands, but Jesus knows better. Jesus has already decided that he will submit to crucifixion, that he will submit to having the sins of the whole world laid on him so that he may save the world from sin. And when the story unfolds according to God's plan, when Jesus is in fact crucified, it appears to everyone that Jesus has been defeated by Rome and by the religious leaders. His followers are in shock and despair as the life of their teacher and friend comes to a horrific end. And then, after such a public, shameful death, when Jesus rises on the third day, does Jesus come and carry out revenge on those who opposed him? He does not. He instead appears in private to his closest followers and he encourages them. And after they have received the power of the Holy Spirit, 
They are to share the good news with everyone. And so for those who do see Jesus, who speak with him, who touch him, or who believe the accounts of the eyewitnesses, it becomes clear that Jesus was not defeated on the cross. Death was defeated on the cross. Sin did not triumph over Jesus. Jesus triumphed over sin. It was not Pontius Pilate or the emperor or even Rome that held ultimate authority. It is Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that has all dominion and power and continues to reign today and into eternity. As we read this morning from the first chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the resurrected Lord who is coming again to judge and to rule and to reign. This is what the apostles and the other Christian witnesses attested to. This is what the Bible and the church proclaims. This is the heart of Christian hope. We desire a king who has a clear, decisive victory, who demonstrates his power and proves to everyone that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we know that day is coming. But Jesus triumphed over sin by dying on a cross, and he depended on a relatively small group of people in Judea and Galilee to spread the good news to the entire world. And he continues to work through his church, that is you and me, by the power of the Holy Spirit to share the good news with everyone, even with those who today may be enemies of Christ, because tomorrow they may be his followers. In Jesus, we have a king who is open to all and who will declare that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He calls people to himself, not with promises of worldly gain, but for the joy of their salvation, of knowing him, and becoming part of the family of God. It will become evident to everyone upon Jesus' return that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in the meantime... His kingdom may appear weak and foolish to those who are in the world because Jesus chooses to use the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the foolish to shame the wise. This is the upside down kingdom of God headed by a king we have not chosen, but rather a king who has chosen us and invites us into his kingdom. To you, King Jesus, be dominion forever and ever. Amen.